Gresham College presents Butterflies, Chaos and Fractals by Raymond Flood, Gresham Professor of Geometry. So let me show you some of the lecture topics for this year. There's no thing like getting you when you're fresh and active to tell you about what's going to happen. Well, I'll be saying a lot more about today's lecture on butterflies, chaos and fractals. Uh, it's a more modern take at describing change than in my lecture last year on the calculus. The second lecture in public key cryptography looks at, among other things, an important application of number theory and factorization, which was also mentioned in my lecture last year on the primes and their properties. But of course, all my lectures will be independent of each other. The Christmas treat this year is on the important area of algebra concerned with investigating and measuring symmetry and some of its applications. Then in January, I will discuss topology, which is concerned with those properties of geometrical objects that are preserved under continuous deformation. In particular, we're going to look at Euler's remarkable formula relating the edges, the vertices and the faces of polyhedra. February brings us to the challenge of describing random processes, while the last lecture in my series on applying mathematics or applying modern mathematics is on the spread of infectious diseases and the insights that mathematics can provide, for example, in different vaccination strategies. So this is a broad and interesting range of topics, and I'm very interested to hear what I have to say about them, <laughs> as I hope you will be talking to one of the audience. The programme was put together last spring and uh, I was very enthusiastic. <laughs> um, but as with all of them, I'll be trying to make them as accessible, lively and interesting as possible and also provide a, a jumping off point in whatever sense you want to take it for your future studies. But now back to today's lecture. Okay. In 1972, the meteorologist Edward Lorenz delivered a lecture with the title, Predictability, Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? In this he showed that dynamical systems can exhibit chaotic, seemingly random behaviour. Many scientists think that this ranks as one of the major scientific advances of the 20th century, together with relativity and quantum theory. Great praise indeed. I'm also going to talk about how the butterfly effect or sensitivity to initial conditions links chaos and the beautiful geometrical object fractals. So let me give you an overview of the lecture. We start with a non-trivial question. Is the solar system stable? You didn't come here to deal with trivialities. Well, this was a question posed by King Oscar II of Sweden at the end of the 19th century. Present-day royal families seem to have more down-to-earth concerns. <laughs> We're going to look at the important contributions of Henri Poincaré to King Oscar's challenge. The solar system is an example of a dynamical system, and I will define two types of dynamical systems, discrete and continuous. Now, a major part of the lecture will be looking at a particular discrete dynamical equation, the logistic equation. Not only because that example has been very influential, but by using spreadsheets, we can do some experimental mathematics with it to illustrate. And if you've got access to a spreadsheet, you'll be able to replicate what, I'm, what I've done. And we can use it to illustrate deterministic chaos, 
I'll be defining these terms, sensitivity to initial conditions and what I call the predictability horizon. Then I look at the continuous dynamical system formulated by Edward Lorenz and motivated by his work in weather forecasting. It's associated with what's now called the Lorenz attractor, um, a so-called strange attractor. The reason it's called strange is that because geometrically it's a fractal. Then I'm going to look at the most famous fractal of all, the Mandelbrot set, and finish with a definition of fractal and fractal dimension. So although I won't be given the definitions in great detail, I do want to give them to you in a sense that you can know what their essence is because sometimes this subject is discussed with any, without any recourse to the underlying, as it were, concrete properties and concrete definitions, which can make it seem, seem quite vague. Well, let me turn to Henri Poincaré, an amazing mathematician and tell you a bit about his role in King Oscar's problem. He's viewed as probably one of the great geniuses of all time, probably the last person to cover the entire range of mathematics. He virtually founded the theories of several complex variables, algebraic topology, and one of his conjectures in topology, known as the Poincaré conjecture, was solved only in this century. It's the only one of the Clay Mathematics Institute problems to have been solved. He made outstanding contributions to differential equations, non-Euclidean geometry, and also worked on electricity, magnetism, quantum theory, hydrodynamics, elasticity, and the special theory of relativity. He was an active popularizer of his subject. He was born in northern France, displayed great ability and interest in mathematics from a young age. He came from a distinguished family, his cousin, Raymond Poincaré, became president of the French Republic during the First World War and died, he died, Henri Poincaré died at the young age of 58. Well, here's King Oscar II of Sweden, son Gustav, grandson Gustav Adolf and great-grandson Prince Gustav Adolf. Didn't show a lot of originality in their names, but... <laughs> but he was an enthusiastic patron of mathematics. And to mark his 60th birthday in 1889, he offered a prize of 2,500 Swedish crowns for a memoir on any of four given topics, one of which was predicting the future motion of a system of bodies moving under mutual gravitational attraction. And this is an excerpt. Try if I go back. There we are here. We've got here... The excerpt, given a system of arbitrarily many mass points that attract each other according to Newton's law, under the assumption that no two points ever collide, try to find a representation of the coordinates of each point as a series in a variable that is some known function of time and for all of whose values the series converges uniformly. In other words, work out what's going to happen. <laughs> now, Newton had solved this problem for two bodies under um, gravitational attraction because he ignored the influence of every other planet on the particular one he was looking at going around the sun and came up with in his Principia um, uh, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy of 1687 that the planets uh, revolve in an ellipse around the sun. But the, the, the N-body problem, the general problem for more than two bodies is fiendishly difficult, it's much more difficult. 
and Poincaré responded to King Oscar's challenge by attacking a special case of the problem. And this is characteristic of what mathematic, mathematicians do. You may think that he was just going to take the case of three bodies, being the, the one up from two. But no, in a sense, he looked at the two and a half body problem. Because what he did was he took three bodies, but two of them are massive and one of them is very small. And he takes the one that is very small to have no gravitational effect upon the two massive ones. And he's interested in seeing what the orbit is of the small dust particle. It's called the restricted three-body problem. And he hoped he'd be eventually able to generalise his results to the general three-body problem and then to more than three bodies. Now, by considering approximations to the orbits, the word approximations is important, he was able to make considerable progress developing valuable new techniques and analysis along the way. Although he could not solve the three-body problem in its entirety, he developed so much new mathematics in his attempts that he was awarded the prize. However, while his paper was being prepared for publication, one of the editors queried it, unable to follow Poincaré's arguments. Poincaré realised that he had made a mistake. Contrary to what he formerly thought, even a small change in the initial conditions can produce vastly different orbits. This meant that his approximation did not give him the results he had expected. But this led to something even more important. The orbits that Poincaré discovered were what we now call chaotic. He had stumbled on the mathematics at the basis of modern-day chaos theory, where even with deterministic laws, the resulting motion may be irregular and effectively unpredictable. And here is an example of the complexities of the three-body motion. This is a typical trajectory of a dust particle as it orbits two fixed planets of equal mass. And in the simulation, it's starting off here, and then there's that tangle, like knitting wool. The trajectory of the dust particle looks very random and chaotic, but, 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 it's completely determined by its governing equations. Now, these three bodies moving under the force of gravitational attraction is an example of a dynamical system. And a dynamical system is a means of describing how one state of a system develops into another state of the system over the course of time. So let's look at some examples of dynamical systems, some more complicated than others. First of all, at the top, there's a swinging pendulum, either in a vacuum or slowed down by the friction of the air. The movement back and forth of a ship at sea, the solar system and the motion of the planets, we have mentioned them already, a particle accelerator such as that at CERN, power networks like the national grid, fluid dynamics like the water flowing out of a tap, chemical reactions when you put milk into your tea, population dynamics of insects, and that's the one that motivated the work on the logistic equation that I'll be coming back to and stock markets and their variation. i just put that in in case somebody would be able to tell me something about it at the question time. <laughs> right, clearly, some of these are much more complicated than others, but in all of them, the state of the system can change over time. And what we're going to see is that even simple systems, I'm going to look at the simplest of them, and we'll see some of the characteristics of chaotic behaviour within that simple system. And then, in a sense, what one is arguing is that more complicated systems, you know, can't be any better 
they must at least have that same amount of complexity. So first of all, let me define a dynamical system. And I'll consider, I'll break them into two types. Discrete dynamical system is one that evolves and jumps. For example, the system could be the amount of money in a savings account at the start of each year, and the underlying dynamic is to add the interest once a year. So we're looking at the state of the system at discrete time points, year one, year two, year three, etc. This could be modelled by what's called a difference equation, and here I've written it Sn plus 1 equals Sn plus 0.1 times Sn. And Sn is the amount of money in the account in year n. And this, of course, uh, the number 0.1 is the interest rate. So this is an example of mathematical model that is completely ridiculous, because where could you get an interest rate of 10% nowadays? <laughs> but it is a difference equation. Okay. The other type of dynamical system is continuous. Right? State of the system varies continuously with time, and this time is usually given by differential equations, rather than difference equations. So here we have the differential equation for the angle theta between the pendulum bob, um, or rather the line joining the pendulum bob to the point of suspension, and the vertical, and it's telling you how that's evolving in time. So this is just Newton's second law, that the, the, um, the G sine theta here is just the force or the component of force that's acting on the bob in the direction in which it's free to travel. And the d2 theta by dt squared, when you multiply by the L, is just the acceleration. So it's force equals mass times acceleration. The point is, what one wants to do is to describe the evolution of theta as time varies. And g is the acceleration due to gravity. All right. Now, the core thing here, and this is sort of mathematical uh, determinism that we're talking about, is that our dynamical systems are deterministic. Okay? So that for our saving account example, if we know the exact sum of money put into the bank at year one, then this determines how much is in the account in all subsequent years. Now, you can think about it when you think through it. You say, that's going to be ridiculous, Raymond, because, you know, 10% a year, you put the amount of money in, you're going to be coming less than a penny at some particular stage. So what do you do with things like that? What I'm saying is we're, we're keeping things like that there. We're keeping the evolution completely to all decimal places, to all decimal points. Okay. And for the pendulum, it's deterministic in the sense that if we know exactly the angle at which we start with the motion, then this determines the value of theta for all subsequent times. All right, so that's determinism is crucial when talking about mathematical chaos. Right. Now, the determinism was captured very dramatically, I think, by the 18th century mathematician Pierre-Simon Laplace, who wrote, an intellect, which is a certain moment, would know all forces that set nature in motion, and all positions of all items of which nature is composed, if this intellect were also vast enough to submit these data to analysis, it would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atom. For such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain, and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. It's important to stress the point that Laplace made. The dynamical system we're talking about are deterministic. If we know the present state, 
the future state completely determined. But to know the present state exactly is a very tall order and indeed often practically impossible. But there was a hope, and Poincaré initially took this view, that if we knew the present state approximately, then we'd be able to know the future states approximately. But that doesn't always turn out to be the case. Sometimes dynamical systems are incredibly sensitive to their starting value, and slightly different starting values can give very different subsequent behaviour. And this sensitive dependence upon initial conditions is the property that best characterises chaotic dynamics, although there's no single definition that covers all use of the term chaotic dynamics. So now I want to illustrate the sensitivity to initial conditions and chaotic behaviour in the simplest possible case. The logistic equation. Uh, I put that up on the screen while I cope with the very difficult task of getting my notes into order. I think we're there. Now again, we're going to be looking at this mathematical equation to difference equation. It could be used to model a breeding population in which the generations do not overlap of insects. Here Xn is related to the population in the nth generation and of course Xn plus 1 is the population in the next generation. And it's probably best to think of Xn as the size of the population in the nth generation divided by the maximum population that the environment can support. And the form on the right-hand side, R times Xn into 1 minus Xn, reflects the fact that when the population is small, if Xn is small on the right-hand side, Xn plus 1 will be bigger. And when Xn is big, it reflects the fact that when Xn is big, the population tends to decrease. So when Xn is close to 1, Xn plus 1 will be smaller. You can get that by dividing the Xn across to the left-hand side and then looking at the behaviour. It's a non-linear differential equation because if you multiply out the right-hand sides, you get R times Xn minus R times Xn squared. So you get the Xn squared, you get that quadratic term, and with a quadratic term, it's called a non-linear equation. It's an example of a non-linear equation. And it's the non-linearity that makes the logistic equation so interesting. Now, R is a parameter. We can change. It might have some biological significance, such as, for example, the reproductive rate, um, which is what I'll call it for the sake of calling it something. And the behaviour of the solutions of this difference equation are going to depend crucially upon R. And we're going to be looking at how they change as R evolves. And to give you an idea that this is not... Well, let me say what I was going to say. First of all, on the right-hand side, we've got graphs of R times X into 1 minus X for different values of the parameter R, um, for 2, 2.5, 3, 3.5 and 4. And you see that they all have their maximum at a half, at x equal to a half, but that the maximum is increasing as the reproductive rate R is increasing. And uh, So we've got a family of one humped curves, and a lot of what I will be saying is applicable to any family or many families of one-humped curves. So it's much more universal behaviour I'll be describing than just appears in the logistic equation. So that's worth thinking about. Okay, so let's just start at the beginning then, just the logistic equation with r equals 2 and starting at 0.1, just to, to fix ideas for us. 
Um, what are we doing? Well, this is where I use the, the spreadsheet, which you'll see I've gone slightly mad over as we, we look at all the various graphs I produce. Um, but here, what we're doing is we're performing iteration. So we start off with, let's say, at 0.1. So you take xn, x1, to be 0.1, and you plug it into the right-hand side. And I plugged it into the right-hand side. We get x2 is 2 times 0.1 times 1 minus 0.1. And I hope that is 0.18. Then you take the 0.18, that output as the new input. And when x2 is 0.18, you plug it in, giving you x3 is 2 times 0.18 times 1 minus 0.18, hopefully 0.2952. Then you take that output and plug it in as the input, x3 equal to that, then x4 is equal to 0.4161, and you take that value of x4 and you get x5, and so on. And it's very, very relaxing. <laughs> uh, until you try to draw the graph off it using the spreadsheet, and then you... Uh, you embed the graph into, the, into your PowerPoint and then you change the spreadsheet to a different value of R and you see that the chart that you had in the previous PowerPoint slide has changed itself because the two of them are linked together. I'm just sharing with you some of the difficulties I've gone through to, to create this lecture. So you can see from the graph on the right-hand side that it's starting off at 0.1, it settles down at 0.5. That's what the um, picture is illustrating here, and I've done it using numbers over here on the right-hand side. Now, there are two characteristics of 0.5 that I want to pick out. First of all, it's a fixed point for the evolution, for the trajectory of the populations. Because once it hits 0.5, it will stick at 0.5, and we can find that out just by putting 0.5 into the equation, and that's what I've done on the top two lines. If you put in xn equals 0.5, twice 0.5 multiplied by 1 minus 0.5 is 0.5. So once it arrives at it, it stays there. But it's more than that. 0.5 is also an attractor for all trajectories. No matter what our starting value is, we end up at 0.5. And I've tried to illustrate that with two random starting points, 0.23 and 0.78. 0.23 on the left is down there, left-hand side, and it goes up, hits 0.5 and sticks there. And with 0.78, it actually undershoots, then comes back up again and stays with that. So the long-term behaviour of the logistic equation, starting with the value or equals 2, is that it settles down to a fixed point, and furthermore, wherever you started off from, it settles down to that point. Okay. Well, having done it once... Oh, let me... This is quite a nice way of seeing what's going on, a graphical way called the cobweb construction. So what you do is you start at a point on the horizontal axis and you go up to the curve, then across to the line, then up to the curve, across to the line, up to the curve. Every time you reach the curve, you're getting the next generation. It'll come back again, yeah. Then you go across to the line, vertically to the curve, across to the line, vertically to the curve. And you can see that what's happening here is that you're zeroing in at that attractive fixed point, which is 0.5. 
And if you want to so do it, but not now, um, you start off at another point and go across and up and across, you'll find that you'll, you'll um, spiral in towards the sixth point, the, the, the fixed point, which is also an attractor. And this is why the one-humped nature of it is quite important, because as the, as the humps become greater, you get different kinds of behaviour occurring. But, you know, I think this is quite a nice way of doing it, but I, I, I'm taking the other approach of um, using the spreadsheet at the moment. All right, so let's go on to... We were at 2. Now let's go to 2.5. When we get to 2.5, it turns out that 0.6 is the attractor. It's a fixed point. So that's what the second line on the slide is showing you. If you put 0.6 in, you get 0.6 out. The two diagrams down below with my two randomly chosen starting points, 0.23 and 0.78, for each of them starting off with them, the evolution, the trajectory goes to 0.6. So what we have here, again, you've got a different fixed point, but you still have a single point attractor. So what we want to do now is to increase the value of R. And as it goes up slightly, we keep getting the attractors, the fixed point. It's the point where the curve and the line meet. But when you get to R equal to 3, that fixed point becomes unstable. Values are not attracted to it. Instead, they're attracted to a pair of values and the system oscillates between them. So when R equals 3, the attractor is now a pair of values. And the system oscillates between them. And this with the graph, it has settled down here between the two values, you know, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And over here, the same kind of thing. And again, that pair of values, that cycle of order two, um, that attractor for the system, it is an attractor for the system because no matter where you start, you will eventually end up oscillating back and forth between those two values. So relatively simple behaviour, more complicated than a single point but um, relatively straightforward and this is the behavior you get when you go up to r equals one plus root six and you can do that calculation because what you do is you look at the expression for um, iterating the logistic equation iterating the logistic equation twice and finding out where its, um, where its fixed points are that's how the, the root six comes out so it's all you have to do is to solve that equation of degree four um, but I've done it for you. At a slightly bigger value than this, the period 2 attractor becomes unstable and the attractor is a set of four points. So again, it's oscillating between four points. Um, uh, sort of, I know this is not tracing them exactly, but I think I don't need to be doing this for you to see that there's a, a, a set of four points uh, and it's attracting because here we're starting off at a value here of uh, 0.23 and it ends up in that period 4 cycle, and here we were starting off with another value, 0.78, so it heads off of that. We had a single point, we had a period 2 attractor, we had a period 4 attractor. I wonder if you can see a pattern. So this is just what I've said, point attractor, period 2, for or slightly above that, the period 2 attractor becomes unstable, and the stable attractor is one of period four. As R increases, you get period doubling. You get period doubling to period eight, period 16, period 32. Now, what that means is that it, if it's a period 32, 
it only comes back to the same value after 32. If period 64, it only comes back to the same value after period 64. Um, after yeah, 64. Um, but the points at which this period doubling occurs are getting closer and closer. Right? They're getting ever more closely spaced until they have a point of accumulation. That point of accumulation is 3.57 and then the system is no longer periodic. It never returns to a value it's been in before. And that's a measure of what you mean by chaotic, this lack of periodic, that's one definition of Because if, it's, if you think back to an approach that could be taken to show that the solar system is stable, if you were asked to show that something is stable, a sensible approach would be to show it's periodic, to show that it comes back to where it's been before. Because it comes back to where it's been before, it's going to evolve in the same way that it did in that previous cycle. So once you can show that something is periodic, you have that stability coming into it. And that was, that's a very powerful approach, and that's why um, Poincaré did a lot of what he did. So here we have now this logistic equation with r equal to 4, and r equal to 5, 7 as well. This one is more up and down all over the place. Now, of course, you know, when I say never comes back to its before, I mean the number with all its decimal points in it between 0 and 1. Clearly here I've got little blobs representing where they are, so that's not going to be the case here. And there's another issue might come up in questions, probably will, about you know the, the finite nature of computer arithmetic and the fact that it can only store numbers to a certain degree of accuracy and um, uh, issues concerned with that as well. Okay, so we've got there something. Now this is a simple difference equation. Here you're starting off, um, you're putting r equal to 4, you're starting off at 0.78 and look what it's doing. It's going all over the place. Okay? So that's one thing to draw from this, that this relatively simple nonlinear differential equation can exhibit trajectories which are not periodic. Okay. Now, there's a very nice way of looking at this all at once. And it's called a bifurcation diagram. And let me, let me show it to you here. Um, bifurcation diagram, period doubling road to chaos. And the way to interpret this is that you've got the values of R on the horizontal axis. And vertically, we have got what the long-term behaviour of the system is. So that you imagine yourself standing at 2.6 and look up and you see a single point above you. So you're at 2.6 and you look up and you see that point. That's about not point 0.6 something, okay? That tells you that in the long run, if R is equal to 2.6, you're going to settle down to a single point. So vertically up, you have the long-term behaviour of the system. You go along to 2.8 and you look up and you say, aha, in the long term, I only see one point above me. In the long term, the system is going to settle down to that value. Then, as you go along here to 3, when you go up to 3, the period 1, the fixed point, bifurcates into the period 2. So when you're looking up now, let's say at this value of 3.2, you see two points above you, and that tells you that the system will settle down to a period 2 orbit. Okay? And as you're going along, here we are, 3.5, wasn't it, I think I said? And you look above, you get 1, 2, 3, 4. So the period 2 orbit has become unstable and it's now down to a period 4. 
orbit, and you go a little bit further, but not as far this time. And it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's morphed into a period eight one, and if, it, if I could magnify it out or whatever, at a little bit further, another value of what you'll look up, it'll be period, where was I, eight? You'll be at period 16, period 32. But they accumulate, they accumulate around what it was, the 3.57, and if you look up here, you've got a whole infinite number of values that the orbit runs through, and it's non-repeating. And at four, that also is a chaotic value as well. When r is equal to four, you look up here. But notice there are periods of regularity as you go on through because we get lots of other period doubling. Um, period doubling, for example, and I think this is the one here. It's at 3.8284. It sounds quite nerdish, nerdish if you're able to remember things like that. Um, where you get period three. So the regions further on where you get order again, Here's a, I think that's the period three one, and here I've done a simulation of it, and it's going into a one, two, three, yeah, back to one, two, three. So it's a period three orbit, I'm just pointing out two things, one, that it goes into chaotic region, then comes back to um, periodic behaviour, and in particular goes back to period three, and there's a very important uh, a paper in the subject by York and Lee, I think it is, um, saying period three. If you've got a system where you can get period three, then you can get chaotic behaviour. Right. So the picture I had there it was trying to explain to you, it's called the period doubling road to chaos. So you've got some underlying parameter that you are tuning, and as you tune it, the long-term behaviour changes, and eventually at some stages, the system becomes chaotic. Okay. All right. Now, I'm very pleased with the next bit, I think so, because I was able to draw lots of graphs. I wanted to show you about sensitivity to initial conditions and, in fact, pull out something quantitative from it as well. So what I'm doing here is I'm taking uh, the system in a chaotic region, 3.7, or equal to 3.7, I'm telling you it's chaotic there. And I'm going to compare, excuse me, and I'm going to compare two trajectories, one starting at a reference value of 0.25 and the other one at a value close to it, 0.251. So it's as if I'd spent all my time doing a calculation, starting at 2.5, and somebody comes in and tells me, sorry, Raymond. 2.5, I've managed to calculate it or work it out or observe it more accurately. It really was 0.251. So I look and do it again at 0.251 and I see where I get agreement. And the way I want to show you the agreement is that I subtract the values from starting at 0.25 from starting at 0.251. And that's what I'm plotting vertically. That's why it runs from minus 1 up to plus 1. So these points are showing you what the difference is between starting at 0.25 and starting at 0.251. Right. So I want to see if that extra information that I've been given, that it wasn't 0.25, it was 0.251, when it starts to hit. And you see, it actually starts to make an influence after about five generations. After about five generations, the two systems are widely disparate. But then your helpful 
graduate student comes in and tells you that they've been able to do the measurement and instead of it being 0.25, it actually is 0.2501. And you think, well, my handy spreadsheet. And you do it again. And you see you get agreement for a longer period of time. Right here. Um, up to about, I'm not sure what the number of generations is there. It's hard looking at this angle. I've got it written down here. Um, uh, 2501.13 generations um, I've written down here. Um, funny enough, the actual numbers won't make a lot of difference in a minute. And you're, oh, we also get another characteristic here where they come back close together again. And that's another recurrent feature of, of chaotic system. And then they, they separate again. Um, so here we have a certain amount of agreement for a length of time. And, you know, I think I did it another couple of times. Here I did it with 0.25, the same reference value, 25001. And can you see that you're getting more agreement, but not an awful lot more agreement. And once you've got an idea and a captive audience, and the <laughs> when the doors are locked, which they are, 0.25 and 0.25301, and you get more agreement. Going for longer, but not that much longer. And it will end, believe me, it's not, not a nightmare. Well, it might be a nightmare, but it will end. Um, 25401, and it goes along further. And you see, it's so easy to do this with a spreadsheet that you... I think that's the... Oh, it's not the last one. <laughs> 25501. That's when my wife told me to stop. <laughs> Look, sensitivity to initial conditions. What I'm doing is I'm having a reference starting value of 0.25 and I'm going to compare the agreement of the trajectory starting at values of 0.251, then 2501, 25001, all right down. And on the right-hand side, the numbers on the right-hand side are the generations of agreement. You know, just by casually looking at it, you know, trying to see where they've definitely separated is what I did there, not done to any great degree of accuracy. You know, I'm out by two or three or whatever. But there's a very great difference between the structure of these two columns of numbers. The left-hand one is, in, sense, in a sense, behaving exponentially. You're, ma you're measuring to another decimal point. You're measuring 10 times more accurately. Or in a sense, you may be, uh, you, or you're measuring 10 times more accuracy, but what you're getting here is such, essentially just a linear increase in the amount of predictability that that gives you. Right? So that if we go to the bottom of the slide, a tenfold increase in accuracy of the starting values only gives a linear increase in agreement of population sizes. And this is a very poor return on the length of predictability as we increase our initial accuracy tenfold. And there's going to be a limit to how far ahead we can effectively predict a system when it's in a chaotic region. There's going to be a predictability horizon that we're not going to be able to see beyond because we can't measure our starting condition accurately enough. In the case of weather forecasting, it might mean, it might mean that you obtain an extra day's predictability, you have to measure everything, say, 
10 times more accurately or maybe take 10 times as many measurements. So one day, you need to do it 10 times more. Two days, you need to do it 100 times more. 100 times more accurately or 100 more observations. Three days, 1,000. You see the expense, the cost of getting that small amount of predictability. But on the other hand, you can use the same ideas to help check how reliable your weather forecast is. This can be done by running the forecast with slightly different sets of starting values. You've got the ones that are measured, come in from the measuring ship, the weather ships and the balloons and um, different other sources. They're the ones you're going to feed in, but then you feed in ones that are slightly different from that. And you try to see how long you get agreement. And that gives you an indication of how reliable your weather forecast is going to be and essentially whether or not your system is in a stable or, or a chaotic thing. And that's called an ensemble forecast because you use an ensemble of slightly different states to, as initial value in order to obtain the forecast. And also, one can quantify this here using a notion of, it's called Lyapunov exponent, which tells you um, how quickly, on average, uh, uh, the average speed at which infinitesimally closed states separate. So I think there are two, or were there maybe three important things the logistic equation has shown us, that with an underlying parameter value can be tuned and you can get non-periodic behaviour. You get this exceptional insensitivity to initial conditions and it's so exceptional that what you get only is at an exponential cost of whatever it may be, you only get a linear reward. And don't trust me, but trust a former president of the Royal Society, Robert May, Baron May of Oxford, I believe, who wrote a very important influential paper in Nature in 1976. And towards the end, he said, not only in research, but in the world of politics and economics, we would all be better off if more people realised that simple non-linear systems do not necessarily possess simple dynamical properties. And that is a summary of the part of the lecture up till now. So let me, if I may, then move on from discrete dynamical systems onto the... Um, discrete and onto the continuous dynamical systems. And Edward Laurence, he was an American mathematician and meteorologist, famous for his pioneering efforts in chaos, uh, chaos theory. And there's a very nice story of how he, he discovered chaos. He was running a simulation of a very simplified model of the weather with three differential equations. Three differential equations are there. And he was using a computer to do them. And he decided he wanted to do a longer run than the one he had done. But rather than start again from the beginning, he took the result that he had obtained halfway through. And he started off the system again, the computer again, from the values they'd produced halfway through. And he soon got very different values for the evolution than he had previously got. And he originally thought it was a hardware fault because software systems shouldn't do that, um, as we know. But um, well, the reason really was that the printout uh, was only giving accuracy to, let's say, four decimal places, whereas in the machine, the number was being held to eight decimal places. So he was putting in a number that was slightly different from the one that had been held internally. 
and this is how he um, discovered chaos and went on to investigate it. Uh, it's a vastly, uh, I, think the, I think this system of three differential equations is to do with liquid in a box being heated from, from underneath. But with certain values of the parameter, um, sigma equal to 10, rho equal to 28, and beta equal to 8 third, you get the Lorentz attractor, which, um, by the way, is just shaped like a butterfly. Um, and this is the attractor. Uh, it's in three dimensions, x, y, and z. If the x, y, z's are a point on the attractor, it would stay on the attractor, and the um, evolution is very complicated indeed, um, never coming back to where it was before, but also coming as close to where it was before, as you may wish to specify. Um, it's called a strange attractor because attractors before that were relatively straightforward geometric objects, like a torus or a sphere or a point, which would be even better. Um, whereas this is a, a fractal object, and here's one of the many beautiful pictures you have on the web of it. If you zoom in, you get that kind of complexity within the Lorentz attractor, just showing you how different the dynamics is. Now, clearly, it'd be a lot, lot harder to have worked through something like this than with the logistic equation, but the, the things come across. Okay? So we've seen that kind of behaviour now, or at least I'm telling you about it, both in discrete and in continuous systems. And I now want to sort of move on to the last section to look at the most famous attractor of all, which is the, the Mandelbrot set, um, which you're probably very familiar with. Um, but let me tell you how to construct it. It's relatively easily done. And I just want to introduce briefly complex numbers and... Uh, there are three pictures here. The first one is telling you that every point in the plane, every point in the plane can be associated with complex numbers. So point in the plane means a complex number. This one down here is telling you that if you have two points in the plane, there's a Z and there's a W, it's possible to add them together. And that's how you add them together. It's at the end, the other vertex of this parallelogram. So we can add together two points in the plane. And similarly, if we have two points in the plane, Z and W, it's possible to multiply them. So here's the point Z, here's the point W, and there's their product, Z, W. Essentially, we're just adding angles together and multiplying those two lengths. So I'm sure, as many know, that can be done analytically or numerically or whatever. But for those of you who haven't met complex numbers yet, what I want you to think of is that all that we're doing is that we've got a recipe that if we have got two points in the plane, we can add those two points together and we can multiply those two points. Okay. And let's hop to the next slide. And what I want to do is to colour um, every point in the plane, either black or white. Every point in the plane is going to be coloured either black or white. All right. And computers were important in this here because... There's an awful lot of effort in order to um, colour these points because this is what you do. You pick your point on the plane and you call it C. You have to call it something, right? You start at that point and then you hop according to the rule, square the point you're at and add C. All right. So you know how to do that. At least you go back to those pictures or whatever or to what the numerical um, rendition of them is. Um, and so you're doing an iteration and then if you find yourself that you're hopping off to St Paul's, um, then you colour the starting point white, otherwise you colour it black. So if you hop off to infinity, colour it white, otherwise you call it black. 
But you have to see the long-term behaviour again. It's again long-term behaviour. And when you do that, this is what you end up with. So that points, starting at a point out here, that's supposed to be a single point I'm starting at, I know that doing this rule of squaring the point I'm at, adding on C, squaring the point, adding on C, will take me off to infinity, whereas if I start with any of those black points, I don't go off to infinity. Right. So the rule, it's an iterative rule, it's given up at the top, you see how similar it is to the logistic equation, and in fact the logistic equation is embedded in this down here, um, Z at n plus 1 is Zn squared plus C, and you colour black those points which don't go off to infinity. So relatively easy and straightforward to describe, but computationally exceptionally intensive. So the, the interest is at the boundaries. So let's look at the boundaries between the black and white. So I've taken these next few images from um, Peitkin and uh, uh, sorry, the name will come back. Yeah, Peitkin and Richter's book on the beauty of fractals. So here they have it. Ah yes, here they have a little point here, and here they have the magnification of it down here. Let's look at some other points on the boundary. Here we have a point in here in this bulb, and this is the magnification of it down here. So you're getting an idea of another way that fractals are sometimes spoken about as being self-similar. We've got another little baby Mandelbrot inside the Mandelbrot. And if you've got a baby inside a baby, you're going to get babies the whole way down. And here's another one here, magnified up to this. And I think the next one is my favourite of all out of the book, that. And that really does show the sensitivity to initial conditions that, you know, if you start at a black point, you get one kind of behaviour. If you start at a white point, you get another kind of behaviour. It really is. I think it's quite, quite low, quite right. You sort of feel you're going to fall into it, but don't. Now, many of the images that you've seen of um, the Mandelbrot set involve colour. Let me just say how that's done. There are various prescriptions you can use. Here we have um, the white region has now been coloured in different ways. The black region is still black. And what the colouring is chosen is, it's just a measure of how any, this is a white region point, so anywhere out here you're going to hop off to infinity. And you really colour it depending upon how quickly you hop off to infinity. So that's all it's doing here. So those yellow points, um, they're saying that um, starting off at the yellow points, you'll hop off to infinity at more or less the same rate. And similarly for the sort of green ones around here. So that's how the coloration is introduced by how quickly something happens. So we can introduce that there just to show you because there's a sort of psychedelic animation where we zoom further and further into the, um, into the Mandelbrot set, which is this. Is it on its second cycle? Have I? There we are. I hear cries of mercy coming from the audience. <laughs> and have I done something absolutely awful? No, I haven't yet. There we are. Okay. So that was just to stop that. Don't, don't read that yet. So you see the amazing complexity at different levels, and that complexity is a way of reflecting the sensitivity to initial conditions, that different points have different behaviours. And what you're doing when you're zooming in is you're going to more decimal points as you're starting off 
your iteration and you're carrying more decimal points as you're going through it. And I just want to finish then with trying to give you something a little bit concrete about what a fractal is. You can define it as being complex on different levels and self-similarity. But originally, and I, the one I find the, the best one to carry in one's head, um, it originates in uh, Mandelbrot's paper of um, 1967, um, Geographical Curves, the one that's called How Long is the Coast of Britain? Statistical Self-Similarity in Fractional Dimension. And he's saying here that geographical curves are so involved in their detail that their lengths are often infinite or rather undefinable. However, many are statistically self-similar, meaning that each portion can be considered a reduced scale image of the whole. That's the self-similarity business. In that case, the degree of complication can be described by a quantity d that has many properties of a dimension, though it is fractional. That is, it exceeds the value unity associated with ordinary rectifiable curves um, whose length you can measure. Right? And that's why he chose the word fractal, because of the fract in the word fraction, because of the root of fract in the word fraction. Okay. And let me tell you how you can get these fractional dimensions. You take a straight line, and you want to measure it using rulers. Now, you lay these rulers along the line. Now, suppose you take rulers that are half the length. You're going to need twice as many rulers. Suppose you take rulers that are a third of the length. You're going to need three times as many rulers. If you take rulers that are a quarter of the length, you're going to need four times as many rulers. So that's just a scaling of one. And that's why a line's called one-dimensional. You take a ruler that's a tenth of the side of the one you started off, you're going to need ten times as many of them. So it just goes down like that there. But let's look at this carefully crafted diagram I got from the web about the coastline of Britain. And I quite like the heading, perhaps with a capital R. As I say, it's taken from the web. If a ruler is of length 200 kilometres, you need 11.5 of them. That's the picture on the left. If the ruler is of length 100 kilometres, half that length, you need 28 of them. Now, 28 is more than twice 11.5. If the ruler is of length 50 kilometres, you need 70 of them. And 70 is more than twice 28. What's happening? You're getting into all the little nooks and crannies as you're going round the coastline. The smaller rulers are getting into all the little crinkly bits. If you can talk of a coastline as full of crinkly bits. Or I think, I think in the paper, actually, Mandelbrot used kinky bits. Uh, <laughs> or I think you may have just said the kinks in the coastline. If you were to use rulers of length 25 kilometres, you would need more than twice of 70 of them. Right? So it's the fact that the scaling is going up more than it does in the case for a line that gives you the fractal dimension. As the length of the measuring stick is scaled smaller and smaller, the total length of the coastline measured increases, and the number of rulers needed is increasing by more than a, you know, a factor of two each time as you're doing it. And in fact, when you look at what the, um, you just apply this into a quantitative um, uh, measure, it comes out at, um, I think in the, in the paper he said, the coastline, the, the coastline of Western Britain um, had a fractal dimension of 1.25, indicating its, its irregularity and its roughness, in the sense that as you double that, you um, 
as you double, uh, sorry, you half the size of the ruler, then you're going to need more than twice as many of them. The 1.25 tells you how many more than twice of them that you need. And just to look at this, because, you know, we've been talking about mathematical chaos, and, and really, for a fractal dimension, we need a sort of an object that is taken to the limit. And this is a good example of the one, which is the snowflake curve. And it's the limit of the following operation. You start with an equilateral triangle. Then on each side, you take out the middle third and you build another equilateral triangle on the bit you've taken out. Again, another very relaxing activity. And so down here, we're doing the same with whatever shape it is. We take out the middle third, we build another, we build another triangle on it and you end up with something. You can see why it's called the snowflake curve with this process in the limit. Um, so one can show that it's a curve of infinite length that encloses a finite area. But all I want to pull out from it here is just to illustrate this idea. Suppose your ruler were of this length. Then if you put your ruler down, it's just going to be of length three right, on the shape. If you decrease your ruler by a third, you're getting into more of the nooks and crannies. You're getting into here and across here. So when you increase your ruler, if you decrease the length of your ruler by a third, the number of rulers that you need goes up by four. Right. Um, and that's true, the whole, this one compared to whatever the next one is in the series. If you decrease the ruler size by a third, you'll need four times as many. And that's why the, the fractal dimension is, um, that's why the numbers four and three and the log four and the log three come because they're, they're given by time by an, by, by an exponent. So that hopefully will give you basis if you want to find out any more about it. The, you know, the, it's trying to put a numerical value on sort of roughness and um, irregularity. And uh, it's quite a nice way of doing it. But um, I'm going to finish just by saying, you know, talking about dynamical systems, kind of chaotic behaviour they can show, Crucial importance in the lecture has been the butterfly effect, our sensitivities to initial conditions, and we've seen that sensitivity in discrete and continuous dynamical systems. And the butterfly effect I've tried to show can also link chaos and fractals. Now, I've made great use of spreadsheets in the lecture to simulate the behaviour of the logistic equations, and I strongly recommend you to try doing so yourself. So anyway, thank you for coming, and happy iterations as you hop off home. <laughs> information please go to www.gresham.ac.uk